Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your hosts, Dr. Anise Chagpar and Dr. Peter Schwartz. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about thyroid cancer and the management of thyroid nodules with Dr. Grace Lee. Dr. Lee is an assistant professor in the section of endocrinology and metabolism at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Schwartz is the John Slade Eli Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. Well, Dr. Lee, my first question is, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your area of expertise? What cancers do you treat? And what's your role at the Veterans Administration Hospital? So as you mentioned, I'm Assistant Professor of Medicine in the section of endocrinology at Yale. Um, There I teach endocrinology fellows, medical residents, as well as medical students. I'm also a clinical endocrinologist at the Veterans Affairs Connecticut Healthcare System. Uh, For the VA, I serve veterans at both the West Haven and Newington locations. Uh, My areas of expertise include thyroid nodules, thyroid cancer, and osteoporosis, along with other metabolic bone diseases. I also practice general endocrinology. Okay. How common is thyroid cancer, especially in veterans, and how is it typically diagnosed? Are there any symptoms that people should be aware of? So in general, um, I can tell you about the thyroid itself. Um, Not a lot of people know where the thyroid is, so let's start off by saying where that is. Great. So it's a gland that's uh, very important to the body. Um, It's in the front of the neck and is right on top of uh, your windpipe. Um, And, you know, when you ask about um, how common thyroid cancer is, it really depends on the type of thyroid cancer that we're talking about. Um, And mainly there's about four different types of thyroid cancer, the most common being papillary thyroid cancer. And that's about 15 in every 100,000 people. Um, And this being the most common type of cancer is actually also um, the most benign type of thyroid cancer. I shouldn't say benign. um, The least aggressive of all different types of thyroid cancer. Um, The more aggressive type um, would be something called anaplastic thyroid cancer, which fortunately is only less than 3% of the different types of thyroid cancer that exist. Um, You asked about symptoms that people should be aware of and how it's diagnosed. Typically, somebody may um, notice a lump in their neck, um, which can be either from a mass in the thyroid or from an abnormal lymph node in the neck or an enlarged lymph node. Um, Another way it's typically diagnosed is actually incidentally. For example, um, if somebody has a car accident and has a CAT scan for their neck, they might be surprised to find out that they have thyroid nodules. Um, But actually, they're very common, and um, uh, thyroid cancer is actually uh, a very small percentage of thyroid nodules, but um, uh, those are the main different types of thyroid cancer, and chances are if you're diagnosed with thyroid cancer, it's probably going to be papillary thyroid cancer. Mm -hmm. Well, I was very interested to see the difference between uh, women and men in terms of the incidence of thyroid cancer. Uh, My impression is that women now have about three times as many cancers as men, but it seems to be less deadly in women. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, how this phenomenon may occur and uh, what what should women be aware of, particularly during reproductive age? So that is true. Um, it's not exactly sure why that's true. Um, some people think that women come to the care uh, under the care of um, 
providers more um, than men do, and and it's true that in men it seems to be seems to be more of a, uh, a um, uh, aggressive uh, cancer. However, you know it's all individual based on the patient, and that doesn't necessarily mean that um, all men are going to have poor prognoses. And um, I would say that. Um, in terms of, I, I forgot to mention earlier about that you mentioned about what other symptoms that mm-hmm. women should watch out for and men should watch out for. Um, in addition to looking for lumps in the neck, which um, you may just find by feeling your neck, um, you can actually, as the disease progresses, have uh, compressive symptoms, is what we call it. So symptoms where um, in the neck, if the mass in the thyroid is large, it can push on different structures. For example, it can make it difficult to swallow or breathe. Um, it can also actually cause a hoarse voice. There's an important nerve that travels near the thyroid um, called the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And if that is somehow invaded or um, pushed upon, that um, can cause a hoarse voice. Um, in addition to that, when it's very large, if you're lying flat, people actually can feel like they're choking. Uh, but again, these are more advanced forms of the cancer and not typically in the very early stages. Mm-hmm. So I noticed that during pregnancy, especially thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer can present in women. Um, is Yet they seem to be very low grade. Can you tell us a little bit about that phenomenon? So thyroid cancer in pregnancy does happen. Um, I would say that in most cases when this occurs, as long as it's what we think is papillary thyroid cancer, we typically do not like to operate on pregnant women. Um, as an OB, I'm sure you would feel the same. And, um, you know, we will monitor the nodule and recommend surgery, ideally after um, after birth of the child. However, um, I would say in rare cases, if something like anaplastic is found, which I've never had happen to me, um, or, or my patients, but if that were to happen, management, I assume, would be different. Um, but uh, typically, we because the cancers tend to be less aggressive, we try to put off surgery uh, for the thyroid in someone who's pregnant. All right. Very good. Um, veterans. In the Vietnam War, of course, Agent Orange became an issue. And uh, I know that there's one recent study that suggested that there was like a 1.24 Relative risk. Remember, so a 24% increased risk of thyroid cancers in those exposed to uh, Agent Art. Is this still a problem for our Vietnam veterans today? And are any are veterans from the Middle East exposed to increased uh, risks for thyroid cancer? So those are all great questions. I can't tell you the exact answer to that, although I can say that if there's any type of radiation exposure, especially at a younger age, mm-hmm. um, you know, that uh, that does increase someone's risk of thyroid cancer. And typically we think of in incidents like Chernobyl or um, incidents, nuclear accidents that occur. Um, so any of agents that are used that potentially could have radioactivity, um, there are also certain um, explosive devices that may have mm-hmm. involved radiation. Anything like that, if you're in um, contact with that, can certainly increase your risk of thyroid cancer, yes. Okay. And... Uh what are the treatment options available to patients? So in terms of um, treatment, in patients who have what's called the differentiated thyroid cancers, which are the very well-developed cancers, we mentioned papillary thyroid cancer, follicular thyroid cancers, another type, the main treatment actually is surgery uh, to remove the thyroid cancer that's present. Um, and luckily, we have 
um, specialist surgeons who can uh, provide this kind of surgery, um, people who have um, high volumes of these type of patients to work on, so tend to have minimal complications. Um, so really, surgery is the mainstay of uh, treatments for thyroid cancer. Um, in terms of types of thyroid surgeries, you can either do a total thyroidectomy, which is to take out the entire thyroid gland, or a hemithyroidectomy, which would be to remove just half the gland. Um, depending on where and how large the tumor is will determine the surgeon's approach and whether they'll take out in the entire gland or half the gland. Um, and then in addition to that, there can be um, extra surgery called a dissection to take out any affected lymph nodes, typically in the neck area. Um, in the middle of the neck where the thyroid is, but then also on the sides of the neck. So actually, one of the things that's really important before somebody has surgery for thyroid cancer is to have a neck ultrasound looking at all the lymph nodes, including the sides of the neck, so that the surgeon can plan the appropriate operation um, and really have the best outcome and not have to go again for surgery. Mm -hmm. I understand that there is some... uh, uh controversy about how extensive the surgery should be, uh, what would be the difference between a partial thyroidectomy versus uh, the complete removal of the gland in terms of the patient and her side effects? So that's a good question. So in terms of um, total thyroidectomy, which is taking out the entire gland, um, actually in both cases, I should probably talk about what the risks are in both and then kind of separate them. So risks, of course, in any procedure would be infection or bleeding, but in particular to thyroid surgery is that um, any there could be damage to that nerve that we mentioned earlier, the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which could actually cause a, a permanent or temporary hoarse voice. Um, for someone, for anybody, actually, that can be uh, a big change in their life, especially someone who's a singer or vocation includes um, speaking um, and giving lectures, for example. Um, in terms of other side effects, Right behind the uh, thyroid gland are tiny little rice grain-sized glands called parathyroid glands. And they're actually, even though they're very small, they're very important in controlling the body's calcium level. Um, And as you know, things like like the heart, for example, rely on important calcium concentrations. So, um, you know, those glands are essential to the body. And it takes a very skilled surgeon to make sure that those are not harmed or the blood supply to those glands are not harmed as well. So one of the complications can be an underactive um, a parathyroid gland or glands, parathyroid glands that aren't functioning properly. Um, so I would say that in particular, that parathyroid effect um, would be a higher risk in patients with a total thyroidectomy versus only half of the thyroid being removed. But even then, um, the risk is actually very quite, is very low um, in patients who have both these procedures and experienced hands. So I, I really don't um, worry about that for my patients. Good. So it sounds like experience is a major issue, uh, and you really want to be sure to have a surgeon who does a lot of these surgeries on a routine basis. Definitely, definitely. Okay. Uh, if a total thyroidectomy is performed, what additional replacement therapies are necessary for the patient versus the partial thyroidectomy? So good question. So in patients who have only part of their thyroid removed, which is usually going to be half of the thyroid, they actually have a chance of not needing thyroid hormone um, after surgery. It's interesting, the other half of the thyroid gland can build um, enough 
response that they can make extra thyroid hormone so you don't have to take the pills after the surgery. But that's not always the case. And so I would say if you're going in and you know that you're going to have half your thyroid removed, I would expect that you may need to take a pill afterwards. Um, With the whole thyroid being removed, you'll definitely need to have um, thyroid hormone therapy afterwards, and that's usually in the form of something called levothyroxine. Um, This thyroid hormone would be a lifelong treatment um, because, as we mentioned earlier, the thyroid has lots of effects in the body, um, and you really can't live without thyroid hormone. Well, you mentioned earlier also that most of the thyroid cancers that we're seeing are low-grade cancers. Are additional treatments necessary for high-grade cancers or for cancers that have spread to the cervical lymph nodes or beyond that? Yes. So um, after surgery for those type of cancers, um, we also offer something called radioactive iodine therapy. And um, I think that this is a very Um, what we would call a sort of a targeted therapy because the thyroid gland is really good at absorbing iodine. Um, And we take advantage of that. We radioactive make iodine that's radioactive. And what can happen is the patient, when they take radioactive iodine, that iodine can go to all parts of the body that have thyroid tissue, whether it be in your lungs or other parts where it may have spread to. Um, All they have to do is take the pill and it will go to both the neck area where there's probably little bits of thyroid cells left behind, and then also to the lungs if there are metastases or spread of the cancer to the lungs. So it really is, a instead of a general chemotherapy, it's really a targeted therapy to that thyroid tissue. Um, and that's sort of the beauty of the treatment. Mm-hmm. Are there any additional side effects that would be expected with uh, radioactive iodine being injected? So it's really, uh, we think, dose-related. So at low doses, really patients tolerate it very well. And the most complaint that I usually get about it is fatigue or um, the fact that they have to actually be on something called a low iodine diet beforehand. And the reasoning for the low iodine diet is to make your body hungry for iodine so that it will take up the thyroid, I'm sorry, the iodine to the thyroid tissue where um, it's it's spread. Um, In terms of side effects, Some people do get dry mouth. You can get watery eyes. Um, uh, Some people get sort of this inflammation of the stomach. Um, And these can be either temporary or permanent. Um, But typically, the stomach effect is very limited and goes away. Um, And in in rare cases, at higher doses, um, there is a concern for other malignancies occurring, such as leukemia. But again, those risks are minimal and typically with higher doses of radioactive iodine. So all in all, patients really usually tolerate uh, radioactive iodine rather well. Um, and if patients are complaining most about the low iodine diet, it tells you that the effects usually are not that bad. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about thyroid cancer and the management of thyroid nodules with Dr. Grace Lee. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for various types and stages of cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies, 
The Battle II trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Peter Schwartz, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Grace, by my guest, excuse me, Grace Lee, Dr. Grace Lee, and we are discussing thyroid cancer and the management of thyroid nodules. So, Dr. Lee, what are thyroid nodules? How are they managed? Can they be cancerous? What causes them? So thyroid nodules are um, actually nodularity of the thyroid tissue. So I describe it kind of as like little balls within your thyroid. Um, They're very common and actually can be present in even up to 68% of adults um, if you look at adults with ultrasound. Um, And they actually increase with age. Um, they're often found incidentally, um, and that's most of the time how I see patients as referrals is that they were found for another reason. For example, um, they had a carotid ultrasound to look at their arteries, and they, oops, happened to find a thyroid nodule. Um, and then I end up seeing those patients. Uh, we mentioned earlier, is another time is when people have CAT scans for other reasons of their neck, and they find the thyroid nodules. Um, and typically, the way to best evaluate them is actually a thyroid ultrasound. Um, Most of these nodules are benign, and I think that's the biggest message I want to say is that if somebody tells you that you have a thyroid nodule, the first thing is not to panic. Um, They're actually very common. And only about uh, 4 to 6.5% of these thyroid nodules are uh, cancerous. Um, In terms of who is at risk for these thyroid thyroid cancers, um, there are usually people who have had radiation to the head or neck area, especially as a child, um, or who have had radiation exposure, um, and who another risk factor would be having a family history of thyroid cancer in a first-degree relative. Um, So I guess the next question that people ask me, what do I do when I find a thyroid nodule? What does the doctor do or what should they do? So actually the first thing to do is um, a blood test and in addition to the thyroid ultrasound that I mentioned. And um, the blood test is really to see whether you have a normal amount of thyroid hormone in your body. And that's done through a test called thyroid-stimulating hormone called TSH. Um, And so the reason we do that is that thyroid nodules, actually some of them can make a lot of thyroid hormone, and those are called hot nodules. On the other hand, there are thyroid nodules that don't make extra thyroid hormone, and those are the ones that are typically um, need to be more evaluated for whether they're cancerous or not. So if somebody has a test that shows that their thyroid is actually uh, hormone level is very high, then it's very unlikely for that thyroid nodule to be cancer. And in that case, it's it's not something that's biopsied. Um, However, if you find a cold nodule, what we do is a thyroid ultrasound. We look at the ultrasound to see what does this nodule look like? Are there things in the nodule that are more concerning? For example, sometimes tiny bits of calcium can be seen in the nodule, and that can be very classic for papillary thyroid cancer. So in those cases, we're more, more concerned We'll offer the patient a biopsy, uh, which is done with a very fine needle um, where only cells are removed from the thyroid nodule and then looked under the microscope. Okay. Uh, you mentioned some of the factor, sorry, sir, some of the uh, uh, risk factors, radiation especially. Are there other factors, other inherited susceptibilities? I, I guess what I'm really asking is who should be screened or should screening be done on a routine basis for thyroid nodules? 
So I would say that screening, just doing ultrasounds on everybody should not be done. Um, I believe that if that's done, there would be a lot of patients who would um, have unnecessary biopsies potentially and tiny, tiny maybe thyroid cancers being found that really may not have caused the patient any trouble. So generally speaking, um, if a nodule is palpated on exam, so having good physical exams at your annual physical is important. Um, If something is found there, then yes, a thyroid ultrasound should be performed. Or if um, one of the t- thyroid cancers that we didn't really talk about much today, but it's called medullary thyroid cancer, um, that one can run in families, meaning that it can be passed on from parent to child, and, and it's due to a, um, often due to a genetic mutation that um, can be checked for. In those types of families, yes, thyroid ultrasound would be indicated. But in the general public, I wouldn't say at a specific age or, or whatnot that people should just generally be screened. I think that would be finding too many... Um, there would be too many unnecessary procedures. Yes. I'm aware of a Korean study, and uh, apparently uh, their, their, their conclusion was they went off the roof with finding so many thyroid nodules. So we don't need to do that. I think that's a perfect example of what yeah. you just said. <laughs> okay. Another controversy seems to be regarding these indeterminate fine needle aspiration biopsies. Can you discuss that for us? It seems like sure. it's uh, 25% or so of, of biopsies. So it final. is a significant number of patients. So um, so let me walk you through a biopsy. So if, if I send you for a biopsy and you have this fine needle aspiration biopsy, the results can be one of the following. So one, they can come back and say, this is this is most likely benign. Um, two, they can come back and say, this is most likely cancer. And then there's this whole gray area in between of what you've described called indeterminate. And it's very frustrating both for patients and providers. What does that mean? How much percentage risk of cancer is that? And it's a large range. And so um, management can be difficult if you just get this indeterminate result. Um, So over the past couple of years, what's been developed is called molecular testing, where they take the RNA or the ribonucleic acid from the cells that you've taken from the biopsy and actually test that for different mutations or changes in that um, that are typically seen in thyroid cancer. Um, If those are seen, then the results can come back and say, hey, you actually have, for example, a 40% risk of cancer, not a 15% risk of cancer in that indeterminate category. And that can sway you and say, hey, you know what? This makes more sense to take the patient to surgery or offer them uh, a thyroid surgery, at least for that side of the uh, thyroid, um, as opposed to watching that um, nodules. So um, this molecular testing has been very helpful in guiding us in managing these patients. But yes, a very frustrating result when you get that gray, uh, gray area indeterminate result. Mm-hmm. Do you find the patients tend to lean more towards surgery than follow-up because of this uh, uncertainty about the nature of the nodules? So it varies. Okay. <laughs> I've had uh, both ends of the spectrum. Um, more so, I, I would say more of my patients would be like to be more proactive. Um, patients that I've had, um, I don't want to categorize people, but um, there are patients also who are very conservative um, and maybe with more advanced age with other risk factors for surgery that may want to just watch it. Um, And I think that makes sense. Um, If you have other reasons of severe heart disease or, you know, heart failure, other things that may increase your risk of complications postoperatively, then um, it would make sense to watch them, especially if your risk ends up being low. Very good. Okay. So let's move on. And uh, let me ask you this. What what is endocrinology? What is the role that hormones play? And how is that managed? And what does the thyroid do? 
So I get asked this all the time. So you're an endocrinologist. So what exactly do you do? Uh, So endocrinology is a study of the body's endocrine system, um, which is basically the system that controls your hormones. And um, this includes the pancreas, the thyroid, uh, parathyroid, the parathyroid and thyroid are in your neck, um, the hypothalamus and the pituitary, which are in your brain, um, and adrenal glands, which are um, what I like to say, they sit on top of the kidneys. They're like little hats on the kidneys. Um, In addition to that, um, sex hormones are made by the testes and the ovaries. So as an endocrinologist, I manage diseases that involve the endocrine system, including thyroid disorders, osteoporosis and bone diseases, um, diabetes, pituitary disease, and even transgender medicine. Okay. Well, you've mentioned a lot of organs that are now sometimes affected by our newer medications. We have targeted therapy and a lot of the new checkpoint inhibitors, for instance, affect these organs. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. So we've had a lot of referrals over the last few years um, as those sort of immunotherapies have been used. And um, these immunotherapies are basically tricking your body's immune system to attacking the cancer. And it works really well, but actually also tends to attack these glands that I treat. So um, quite often I will see patients who are um, getting these treatments and will have what we call um, thyrotoxicosis or um, too much thyroid hormone as a because the thyroid gland is being attacked by the agents. Um, In addition to that, you can actually see also inflammation of your pituitary gland, which is the gland, which is a tiny gland in the middle of your brain. And we call it actually the master gland because it actually um, sends out hormones to other parts of your body and glands to control those. So, um, yes, the, the beauty, though, is that we never tell we never tell onco- other oncologists to stop their treatment. Uh, the beauty of it is that we have all the hormones to replace that in terms of treatment. So whatever needs to be done for their primary cancer, um, we we say go on and do what you need to do and that we will take care of the sequelae that happen with the hormones and we will replace whatever hormones need to be replaced. So the thyroid, in my experience, can be both overactive, as you just mentioned, but also underactive. Mm-hmm. So you need to be able to evaluate that. How, how do you go about evaluating the patient? So one of the reasons I love endocrinology is that we can check blood work. <laughs> and uh, blood work can be very helpful in telling you what is going on. So one of the um, things, so what can happen is uh, inflammation, or we call thyroiditis, um, of the thyroid gland can happen with these immune checkpoint inhibitors. So um uh, initially what happens with them is inflammation of the gland, and there's actually preformed thyroid hormone within the gland that as it's attacked is released. And so because that happens, um, there's a lot of extra thyroid hormone in the body, and patients can feel symptoms of too much thyroid hormone. Well, what would those be? Um, feeling hot when no one else is hot, almost like a hot flash. Um, feeling feeling very hungry and actually having weight loss you can have, um, weight gain, um, sort of just an imbalance in in your thyroid hormone. Um, After that happens, because the thyroid gland has been inflamed, it also can't can no longer make thyroid hormone. So after having a state of a lot of thyroid hormone, patients go through a state of no uh, low and then eventually uh, very low thyroid hormone. And so at that point, the thyroid hormone needs to be replaced. Um, and so that's a very typical picture that we see. Uh, we call it immunotherapy-related. Um, it's like a thyroiditis. Yeah. And the symptoms of low thyroid? Um, so low thyroid hormone, you can see the opposite. So you 
can feel very tired, um, feel cold when no one else is cold, constipated, um, and really um, uh, you can also have a low heart rate. Yeah. We're just about ready to finish, but let me ask you, any recent advances that have been made or exciting research in the pipeline? So you alluded to some of that. Actually, immunotherapy is being used now in uh, in trials to see whether that can help patients with advanced thyroid cancer. And at Yale, there is a trial now ongoing with cabozantinib, uh, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor in patients who've failed another type of tyrosine kinase inhibitor called lenvatinib. So a lot of interesting research is going on in advanced thyroid cancer these days. Dr. Grace Lee is an assistant professor in the section of endocrinology and metabolism at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.